Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Shatara Michelle Ford, a filmmaker whose first feature, Test Pattern, follows an Austin couple as they deal with a shared trauma in very different ways. It's a potent and ultimately unnerving drama about stress fractures, social dynamics, and contemporary America, built on two fully realized performances from Brittany S. Hall and Will Brill. It's streaming on Kino Marquis' virtual cinema platform right now, and you should see it. Shatara picked You've Got Mail, a 1998 romantic comedy that reunited writer-director Nora Ephron with her Sleepless in Seattle stars Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. For this one, she cast them in a remake of Ernst Lubitsch's The Shop Around the Corner playing two people who fall in love with one another over email while hating each other IRL, mainly because one of them is opening a superstore that's about to put the other's adorable little bookshop out of business, which is, you know, a dick move. One small thing, construction noise meant I had to set up and record this episode in a different location, and somehow that wound up setting my laptop's mic to the Zoom default instead of my USB mic, which is why I sound like I'm in a fish tank this week. Sorry about that. This is someone else's movie. So um, I grew up in a pretty serious diet of uh, movies. Um, and I mean, like all sorts. And that's because I grew up with two parents who really like movies. They're not snooty about it. Um, they just, you know, they watch a lot of the things that they saw when they were kids. So my dad watched a lot of Bruce Lee movies growing up and um, Westerns. His dad loved Westerns, so they were constantly on in the house. Um, Also really bad action movies. I mean, like Steven Seagal, kind of like that kind of stuff, always on in the house. Um, But something that we also did as a family every Friday night was go to the you know local multiplex, which for us was the AMC chain. And we would, you know, watch a movie of my parents' choice for probably up until I was about 14. Um, and then we would um, go and have dinner at like a chain restaurant somewhere and then go home. Um, I want to frame it that way because now I, I am a cinephile. I love, and I'm, I have a very deep knowledge of film, but um, I'd say my shorthand, I'd say the things that I know really, really, really well, but I also go back to and they're almost comforting are studio films from the 90s um, because of the stuff that my parents watched all the time and it was on television all the time. And, um, and I don't know, I also really love um 90s studio films. It was at a time where, I don't know, I might get in trouble for saying something like this, but I think, I don't think that studio films were cynical then. Um, Like really competent, like every, you know, department was like on point, you know, at that, at that time. And so you could make something as simple and saccharine as you've got mail, but Every aspect of it is perfection. The writing is perfect. The performances are perfect. The the framing, the cinematography, everything is just perfect. And for me, as someone who loves paying attention to all of those aspects of filmmaking, um, it's really nice to be able to watch a film that's actually very easy and um, digestible, but also like 
just be incredibly competent. So when I think about like top competent films um, in that kind of space, You've Got Mail is up there. On top of the fact that I also really, really, really love Pride and Prejudice. Um, and this, I know it's, you know, a remake of Shop Around the Corner. I feel that, but I think that there's something about um, that particular Jane Austen novel that um, is very consistent with like humans and like, just like crosses the ages. And that's the idea that sometimes our own fears and insecurities get in the way of us being emotionally honest with others. Um, and we do weird dances with each other until there's some sort of breakdown. We can see each other for who we actually are and then move beyond that. Um, I love that. And I think that it's done so well in this movie. I mean, there's so many other things, but that's the, that's the main, that's the main thing. Well, yeah, the Pride and Prejudice comparison, I get it. I absolutely, like, it's clearly part of the, the, the meta reflective referential world that Efron constructs where not only like the shop around the corner is literally named the shop around the corner and all of that, but the arc of Pride and Prejudice doesn't involve Mr. Darcy realizing he's a monster, which I think is the one thing that like, people give Tom Hanks such a huge buy on this because he's Tom Hanks. And I think yeah. if you had cast anyone else, it wouldn't work. I mean, you need yeah. someone who is as as just innately likable as, as Hanks to pull off Joe Fox and re, you know, like the way he realizes or the way he's supposed to realize over the course of the film that he's not the good guy in this. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, Norm, because, you know, I still think Joe Fox sucks. Like, <laughs> I would never, ever, ever want to be in a relationship with Joe Fox. However, um, and I don't necessarily think that he thinks he's the bad guy. But what I do think that Joe realizes is that um, there's some dysfunction in his life yeah. that's kept him from being vulnerable, but it's also kept him from like actually challenging himself and pushing himself personally. Um, he's a rich dude. Things have come easy. Um, he loves the thrill of like, you know, uh, you know, erecting a new business and tearing something else down, but that's all kind of like spiritually empty stuff, you know? And I think, wait, I think at some point he's horrified by his father. He's horrified by his girlfriend played by Parker Posey. who's amazing. And um, he realizes that he, he is so much, there's so much more that he should be, you know, giving in his life, which is inspired by dear Kathleen Kelly, who's just so hopeful, so optimistic. But interestingly enough, I think she also falls into the same trap of not trying enough, you know? So yeah. again, I think where they're able to kind of see each other eye to eye. But to go back to the, you know, realizing that you are a terrible person, I mean, I also wonder, I, I think that's why I, I think Joe Fox and, and Mr. Darcy are actually quite similar is that Darcy isn't Think that he sucks either. He's just like, oh, I've overlooked this terrible thing, and now I'm going to rectify it and fix it for this person I've decided to let into my life. Um, that is, you know, an important function for me as a person. But I don't think that he became less arrogant. Um, no, I you're you're right. <laughs> um, but the, I think that the question of who Darcy is and when he learns to appreciate 
uh, Elizabeth Bennett, it's it's not hampered. It's just delighted completely because we see Pride and Prejudice entirely from Elizabeth's point yeah. of view. Yeah. And you've got Mail because Nora Ephron made Sleepless in Seattle and knows the appeal of watching Tom Hanks just wander around the world by himself, splits the film. And we're spending time with Darcy and we're still denied his revelation, right? Like we don't get to see it except for, and I caught it this time through because we watched it again last night. Well, we watched it. I watched it again last night. My wife had never seen it. And that was an experience. Um, (laughs) But um, I think the mistake that Efron makes in structure Mm -hmm. is that Joe knows before Kathleen does. Yes. Right. But is that a mistake though, Norm? Because, and this is why I stand by the fact that, me and Joe, Fox, F-O-X, no, we're never going to be together because it's dark what he does to her. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. really dark, but believable. And I think that, again, humans do stuff like this. We don't mean to, we're all just like balls of like, you know, insecurity and fear and, and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, Kathleen's such a bright spot, right? You don't want to be hated by Kathleen Kelly. Like yeah. that just... That's so icky, right? So I think that, you know, Joe is trying to protect himself and he did it in a really, really, really shitty way. And I also think that it makes, there's something that he says, I think it's really dark, but it's the part where, um, you know, Kathleen's ready to meet him and Joe and Kathleen have kind of become friends, kind of. And um, in the email, he's like, I, I I would love to, you know, I'd love to get together, but there needs, there's some like fine tuning or something like that that he said. Yeah. I'm like grooming, you mean? Like, it's just no. like, it's really, <laughs> it's crazy. But I don't know. You know, I watch, I watch this movie like four times a year. Um, okay. And in my last feeling, which was, I don't know, like uh, around Christmas as it would be, um, I saw the vulnerability in Joe Fox that I had never, ever, ever seen before. And I think this is what you were talking about, Norm, about that kind of like turning point that we're still kind of stolen, but it's in there just a little bit. Um, And it it really does start when he goes to visit her at her apartment when she's sick. Actually, I'm lying. It's even earlier than that. When Joe goes to the blind date. Yeah, it's the cafe. um, Right. Yeah, and yeah, moment. and and Kathleen's just so nasty. You can just kind of see him crack a little bit every single time. It's and when he leaves like, the money for the his mochaccino because he's holding back tears, which I hadn't yeah. caught before. And it's like, I didn't either. I didn't either until this time. He's yeah, and, so good at that. I know. I know. And you know, Tom Hanks is the only dude. I mean, he catches me by surprise every single time. Like, I can't think of any other actor where. I'll watch something and they'll just make one tiny little decision and it will just bowl me over. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, he was, there's just these really, really lovely, subtle things that he does that, that yeah, that now make me recon. I guess I'm not demonizing Joe like I used to now that I kind of see that. Um, and I wondered all the time, you know, as someone who, again, I think, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's a mistake, but it's definitely a choice to have Joe construct this uh, dynamic between him and Kathleen before he finally reveals himself. Um, I would always say to myself, 
or in even the friends because they'd be like, why do you love this movie? And I just feel like, I don't know because it's actually really dark and it's low-key grooming and I hate it. I'm so angry and like Joe sucks. Um, but I think it's those subtle things that we're just now noticing. Um, like he's so fully human and it is really tragic. Um, and you just kind of, you can understand him. And so you you buy it, I think. Yeah, I wonder too if it isn't just that Efron, she sort of weights the whole movie towards the fact that we know that it's going to be okay. Like these, this yeah. is Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They've made movies together before. They were in Sleepless in Seattle. The reverse, of course, where she stalks him. And I guess that's why it has to happen this way. But mm. the idea that Kathleen will be all right because she's going to end up with the multimillionaire, <laughs> it seems to excuse a lot of structural choices to me. Where, I mean... She just gives up. It's really surprising this time. Like she's not allowed to be depressed. She's not allowed to be even really sad other than that one moment where she looks in the empty store and flashes back to her mother dancing with her. But it just rolls right over what's happening to her. It does. And, you know, I was thinking about Kathleen's character a lot. She's, I think, infectious because I'm definitely not like, I wish I were. (laughs) <laughs> as optimistic and hopeful as she was. And no one is as optimistic. I, yeah, it, it can't be real. Um, but, you know, I think that we end Kathleen on a very, like on a low note that's about to kind of take a turn. Right. And that's the fact that like, you know, she is getting this children's book offer and um, she is, this is like a very new thing for her. It's probably something she should have done from jump, right? But it's taken her to her, you know, late thirties or whatever to finally like try, you know, try her hand at something that she's probably very good at. I wish now again, I'm not even for a nice, lovely studio movie like this. um, I would rather not participate in wish fulfillment, but for the sake of this, I'll do it. Right. And that's what Um, these movies are for. You can't get around it. Exactly. What I wish in retrospect um, is that, Kathleen was able to kind of stand her on her own two feet and have her own kind of competent kind of new career and for her and Joe to kind of meet each other in the same place and be able to see eye to eye. I think, you know, people respect Kathleen a lot and she's got that one up on him, but she does not have his money and she does not have like, you know, his kind of like stability and sense of self within his career. And he effectively, you know, held a lot of information over her head and behind her back for a very long time. So the power dynamics are really, really, really wonky. Um, I don't know. I think that sends a weird message to, to, you know, young people as they're developing relationships. (laughs) So I kind of wish that, you know, we just had that extra beat of Kathleen kind of fully realizing herself. Definitely. Yeah. I was rewriting the third act in my head while I was watching it last night. It's like, you know, what needs to happen is Kathleen needs to figure it out before Joe or instead of Joe. That would have been cool. If she tweaks to him and then starts nudging like NY152 in a better direction to question himself. And like, why do you fall back on the Godfather? Because he's the one teaching her all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even before the, the twist of him of Joe finding out. And, you know, if, if the story is um, a woman shaping a man into the best version of himself, 
you can deal with all the stuff in Joe's life that's toxic and you can deal with the controlling and the gaslighting and all the other things in a way that is at least punching up instead of punching mm-hmm. down. And I agree. That's yeah. such a good point, Norm. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I also figured out a better way for the film to end, uh, which is that Joe simply hires Kathleen to run the children's books. Right? Right. Like to be the buyer, the thing that Parker Posey's already told him she's great at, even though he immediately says, no, you would never know. She's not good at anything, which is, again, still weird negging that I don't understand. Except that it's just maybe now he needs to keep the the ruse up because he's still with Posey. Something like that. I don't know. I don't know. know. A lot of stuff is kind of. I also think he's just so deeply insecure that the Mm. thought of somebody who sees straight through him, by the way, could also be so beloved and good at stuff, I think bothers him. Oh, that's true. That comes out in the gym scene, right? Where he's immediately hostile to her. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I I, I wonder if if that, you know, has something to do with it. But uh, yeah, you know, that wouldn't that have... Almost the film takes us in that direction. Like it's all there, right? Look at Lazer and he's working over there. Like you just kind of think that's gonna happen. Although Kathleen's such a principled person, I bet you anything she wouldn't have taken the gig if it was offered to her. And I'm sure Joe knows that. Um but he does understand her. That like that's the worst very thing. Much. He understands her beautifully, but still does the things he does. Yeah. Once okay. he knows, right? Yes. And I think. Now, as I'm reflecting again, because now, like, the raging feminism in me is like, Shatara, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Not just dissecting this thing and reminding herself. I think, again, maybe something that I I love so much about the film is that those are two people who fully see one another, maybe behind screens. Like, that's the only time where they're actually able to be vulnerable, although Kathleen was so willing and ready to be vulnerable in person. and Joe still had to play games. But um, I think I think to be fully seen by another person is just such a special, special, special thing. And to be seen by another person also means that you're kind of taking the warts and all. Um, and it doesn't mean that like, if they're abusive or, you know, trash and all this kind of stuff that like you accept it, but it's saying that like, okay, here you are, I've created space for you to kind of do what you need to do with your life. Um, but like, I know you, I know you. And like, that's definitely the case for for Joe and Kathleen. They definitely know each other. Um, and I do think that that's special. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to end up together. But I mean, as that relates to like my own film, I think I'm talking about those same things. You know, I, I look at Evan and Renisha and I see two people who definitely fully see each other, um, or at least did at one point. And regardless, you know, Evan also carries a lot of weird vulnerabilities that makes him uh, behave in ways that are harmful um, and ultimately puts his relationship at a strain. And, you know, the ending is pretty ambiguous to what happens to them. But I do have my thoughts on that. But everyone has their thoughts. But in general, I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, because of just the messy, complicated people that we are, um, we're all prone to kind of go down a road that um, is driven by our own insecurities um, and ends up hurting the people we love the most. Um, And sometimes we can work through that and sometimes we can't. I was going to say, test pattern places it in a world where... I think the 
the obstacles are internal, external, and very real. Whereas you've got mail, there's really nothing that can't be fixed with a check. No, which again is like, you know, a lovely fantasy as somebody who grew up with like very little money and privilege (laughs) to be able to watch two people just be able to worry about, you know, their lives in the Upper West Side in, you know, booming New York City in the 90s. Like, wouldn't that be nice? There is that great throwaway line where Heather Burton says that, you know, I can't, I can't afford my rent anymore. I'm going to have to move to Brooklyn. It's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> sweetheart, no. <laughs> it's incredible, though. It really is like, yeah, you're, you're right. It is an absolute um, elitist privileged fantasy of life. But it was one that the movie's designed to be attainable, right? Like, it feels yeah. like everybody's scraping along but still managing. Everybody's really comfortable. I, I think it's sort of great that Bernie has, at the end, just this revelation of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly wealthy. Yeah. If you need money, you can have some, but I'm not going to save your store because yeah. the store has to go structurally in order for the, the ending to work, mm-hmm. in order for the movie to play. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathleen has to lose everything and be abandoned by her her benefactor, potential benefactor, who's still nice to her and really, you know, go do stuff that isn't this. That That's so sad in retrospect that Nora Ephron realized in 1998, yeah, bookstores, they're, they're going. Yeah. That's inevitable. Yeah. And so much else about the film is designed to be, it's this aspirational fantasy. Right? Yes. Most romances are. It, yeah. it can't be helped, but it is also so bustling go-go New York. It's the Clinton era. Everything's chugging along. But Nora Ephron is writing from a place of like absolute entitlement, right? Where Mm -hmm. not just in terms of knowing that everything's going to be all right for these characters, but the world that she gives us, you know, like book parties where Mm -hmm. um, we don't really know who's throwing them or why or why everyone is there. The author, I I did notice this time watching it on on a big screen Blu-ray, you can read the books that are on the shelves. And it's stuff like Oh Jerusalem, and there's a framed copy of, um, I think it's Is It Bad for the Jews? But so it's, it's somebody's apartment. It's clearly real rather than sad. Philip Roth, I have no idea. But but there's this sense of a window into a world where nobody has to work hard. You know, uh, Greg Kinnear can just barf out whatever column he's mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. And, and be hailed as a genius, even though like, Efron clearly hates him, which I think is great. <laughs> A journalist with absolutely white no man integrity. in that movie. Yeah, yeah, he's the worst. He's the worst. And Parker Posey is just a little bit uh, superficial, as far as I can tell. She seems yeah. like she's got it on the ball. Yeah, she wants pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, but on her stuff. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing. I do find it. There's subtle things in there again that, you know, as we zoom out and analyze how that's like affected us culturally in a larger sense um, that might be seen as problematic. But, you know, up close, it feels quite innocuous, you know? We're like, because I think the idea is that like, Nora's, because obviously this is her world. And so everything just seems so like pedestrian and quotidian at that point, you know? And so it's all flattened um, and, and normalized, um, which in some ways I guess is lovely. And I think as a contrast to Nancy Myers films, which always feel very wealthy and like yeah. and like like elaborate um, in ways that is slightly alienating and 
almost feels like a Sex in the City movie. You know what I mean? It's just like mm-hmm. so much and it feels so unreal. Um, but yeah, Nora's films are always so subtle in the in the in the comfortable privilege that um, her characters occupy, um, which again is lovely. But definitely, there's something again as as the marginalized and uh, marginalized person with very little wealth or privilege. I think what that definitely does to you is because Nora's world is so normalized. It's like, well, well I don't have those things. So what? What is wrong with me? What, yeah. is, what am I doing that's not, you know, yielding this kind of um, lifestyle? Um, and I find myself even now, you know, like being the disgraced millennial, you know, who graduated in the middle of a recession and um, and then decided to make art for a living. You know, I'm still asking myself, like, God, am I successful? Because I still don't have that apartment on the Upper West Side. Yeah. Nobody can afford to live there now. No. I, I mean, there's that great scene where they're walking around the, the market, uh, the little farmer's market thing that sprung up. To, uh, there's a Trader Joe's on that corner now. Like, it's the fight to keep the Upper West Side bucolic and adorable is long since ended. Um, <laughs> but they're trying to preserve their version of it, which is we have the money to live here and everything's nice. And I don't want to, you know, we don't want to change anything about the layout. There's, like, people who have money but say they're comfortable, that's what the Nora Front movies seem yeah. to have yeah and it's that warm blanket thing where nobody really worries about anything uh, kathleen casually mentioned she has some money saved up mm-hmm. right i think she actually says i have a little money mm-hmm. which again we have no idea what that means um, exactly. but yeah. she's, she'll be fine is the point because three months later she's still just walking around her apartment sniffling exactly. Yeah. exactly and this sort of the the it's not obliviousness exactly in the Nancy Myers films, it absolutely is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Where um, there's a, I remember, I think Ebert wrote about it too, but I remember watching the Father of the Bride remake that she and Charles Shire made together. And there's a line where um, Steve Martin is sitting with a calculator, the classic early first act scene, figuring out how much this thing is going to cost. And he, met, he mutters to Diane Keaton, I think it's going to be like $100,000, but we'll be all right. We can pull, we got that. It's like, how... <laughs> Why should I feel anything other than contempt for these people? <laughs> yeah. I feel like a line like that in every single one of her movies, I'm just kind of like, ugh. Yeah. How much is the kitchen renovation and it's complicated? Like the kitchen renovation is the inciting incident of it's complicated. Which, I know. I know. And then the hotels that they go to in New York City for the graduation. Right. I mean, even the neighborhood in Santa Barbara, the whole thing, I was just like... And I enjoy that movie, but the whole time I'm like irritated, just yeah. like deeply uncomfortable. Well, there's a revolution in the corner that we never see. Like there, I like to imagine that every Nancy Myers movie ends with the characters being team five <laughs> days later. Just coming, it's coming. Um, Nora Ephron, yeah, Ephron at least I think understands the the concept of giving characters small things that are relatable. Yeah. So you know, even just the this is something else we we were talking about Kate and I last night. Watching Tom Hanks be just in a space by himself with a camera on him, watching him at that little fair with the kids who don't Mm -hmm. want to be on the boat in the first act is just, he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't exist on camera anymore. And it's just so charming. I agree. Yes. Yeah. And, And again, I think that's something that's missing in like, you know, 
mainstream like commercial Hollywood films is just like the lived in feeling um, <laughs> just watching actors do what they do um, and I you know I I, I've been spending a lot of time lately trying to figure out why that is. And I'm still not sure. Um, maybe just like the scripts don't exist. I mean, I, you know, I talk to friends who are executives all the time in Hollywood and they're like, I can never find a good rom-com. And it's true. Something's happened where they're not really around. Um, you know, Netflix seems to have exactly. found some for, for, you know, young folks, like teenagers and stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the rom-com for the, you know, 40 year old person kind of doesn't really exist anymore, but maybe it only existed mainly because of Nora. It wasn't here. She made it a hundred million dollar genre. Right? If you could she make did. a movie that made that kind of money, but it was also the nineties when you could release a mid-level film like that with stars who had a proven track record. Now you have to sort of backdoor it the way, uh, Seth Rogen did with Longshot. Cause True. that's a great example of a movie that is exactly what those movies used to be, but it's also loaded with the Seth Rogen brand and political stuff. And like, you have to, you have to cantilever the romantic comedy. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that film that I feel like you don't even need to have because of this backdoor situation that you're talking about. Yeah. I, you know, I, I want, I personally wanted to like that film. Like, I don't like it because it's just, there's too much. I really wanted it to like, just like calm down and like let us sit in spaces with people a little bit more, take out a, a few of the gags, just let it breathe, let it breathe. Um, but again, I'm sh like, that's just not really the style of what goes down anymore yeah. um, in a studio film. Um, I don't know. I, and I wonder what that does to, to audiences. Like, again, you know, my palette's been pretty, defined by a particular era where that stuff was allowed. But I wonder, um, I wonder for, you know, Gen Z in particular, like what, you know, how do they respond to those things and how does that make them feel? Um, and is it even something that they know to long for? I mean, I guess they don't have to, but I wonder sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's been, they're learning the mechanics from things like, yeah, to all the boys or, or, the half of it, which was an, a terrific example of, you know, Alice Wood figuring out how to use those dynamics in, in a strangely powerful way. Like that film is so small and so big at the same time. I agree. I agree. Uh, there was another one I was thinking of that came out last year that was just equally, like just blindsided me by, oh, always be my maybe. I guess that's two years ago now. <laughs> but the only, like time has no meaning. But, um, but the only way you can make this work now is if you build it for yourself, I think, and you you either reference the world of the genre or you pretend it isn't even a thing and then just yes. have it and happen. go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a romantic comedy aspect to the first act of Test Pattern. Yes. Or there would be if yes. there wasn't for that opening shot. I, indeed. Um, you're right, Norm. And that's intentional. Um, I... And again, as we're sitting here talking out, you've got mail. Clearly, I've watched a, a romantic comedy or two in my life and do do appreciate the genre. Um, and I, you know, the idea for me, I, I was like heavily influenced by Hitchcock, only in the sense that um, 
what you think a Hitchcock movie is in the first 15 minutes is not what it is in the, you know, in at minute 45. And it's definitely not what it is by the end. He's so good at finding a, like, just, he just kind of like, he uses the genre until he doesn't need it anymore. And he puts it down and then he picks up another one and like runs with that and then puts it down. And it's really cool. And I also think it's much more consistent with like lived experience. Um, you know, not one moment you have in, in your life is just one thing. You can be at a romantic dinner with your wife and everything is lovely. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, the lights go out and the doors shut on you and, there's, I mean, of course that doesn't really happen, but the idea is that, um, you know, things do shift. And I, I feel particularly as um, a black person in America, um, a queer non-binary woman, um, that there's, my personhood is constantly under threat. And so nothing feels like one thing for very long. And even the most wonderful, um, moments that I have can be easily affected by a glance or a comment or just a hostile environment, um, which isn't that hard to find. You know, I think that especially, I know that now as a as a society, as, as Americans at least, um, Americans like talking or wanting to talk about this stuff more, um, especially in the last nine months. I don't know what it's like for, for y'all up there in Canada, but um, you know, similar tensions. Yeah. We just we used to be better at pretending they weren't a thing. Mm. It's it's the what was the line? I can't remember which comic it was, but it, it's this great line from somebody stand up set in the in the early 2010s about how you know, like isn't it amazing that once everybody got cell phone cameras, aliens stopped arriving and cops started killing black people, <laughs> and like that reality has been impossible to ignore. And in Canada. You know, just because slavery wasn't the same issue, like it's not rooted in our DNA the way that it is in the U.S., it's it's been easier to pretend that everyone is every example is an isolated incident and that nobody ever like the bad apples theory and it's that's all bullshit and we know it and it's just harder to pretend. We still have politicians who try to pretend it is not a thing, but we had a there were a couple of very very visible deaths last summer and following George Floyd and the coverage in the U.S., it just, it opened the floodgates here for the media being willing to confront it. And it's been a really powerful awakening all over again. The problem is like, not the problem is, but previously, every time this has happened and there have been protests about police killings of, of racialized individuals or, or um, you know, suspicious deaths, I think is probably the legal way to frame it. Uh, it's been a flurry of coverage for about six weeks and then it goes away. And this time it hasn't. And hopefully that means we can make movement towards change. Yeah. The idea that you're constantly pitching this to people who don't want to hear it yeah. creates its own kind of wall. It's, and it's got to be worse in America. I mean, I'm sure Canada just is like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think, you know, again, the the point about, you know, slavery not really being as much of a kind of foundational um, aspect in Canada as is here. Um, well, that's our excuse. Right? Yeah, that's it's, it's but I think there's a, there's a point to that because, I mean, so I'm married to a white British guy, um, grew up in the UK, lived there until, you know, we moved over here. And, um, you know, and I lived in the UK for a while too. And, and Brits also don't, even though they're like, 
<laughs> they're like the grandmaster creator of this whole thing. Um, they love to act like that's not a part of their history and it's somehow removed. And so therefore um, their racial problems aren't it, race isn't the issue, it's class, but it's actually a really complicated, like, mishmash of the two of them, and it's, like, terrible and really, ugh. And you can't talk... Every now and then they get it exactly right. Yes, yes, um, yeah, hate it. Um, but, you know, and I, I, I said to my partner when we, when I lobbied to move back to the U.S., I was just kind of like, at least I know what I'm looking at, you know? I know somebody you know, has an issue with me because of what I look like um, or what identity I occupy. Like I got a clear sense of that. Whereas in the UK, I was never really fully sure. And it was always like extra things that I wasn't really like used to having to worry about, like the class thing. So, you know, not going to a school that they've heard of because I'm from America and that they can't really place me in, um, you know, where I've chosen to live and like you know, where my partner grew up and what sort of accent he has, like all of that was kind of reading into how they understood me. And it was very confusing and frustrating. But anyway, um, no, but I do think that, you know, because America's foundation is on the subjugation of Black bodies, that means that there's a lot of, uh, there's plenty of reasons for white people to not acknowledge it. Because if you admit that part and then recognize that there's like a, a legacy um, and that their their benefits, Nora's lovely benefits, mm-hmm. Kathleen and Joe's lovely benefits, their very easy life in the Upper West Side. Um, if, if we kind of threw the big, you know, race thing into that, that would be very uncomfortable for all of them because they'd have to reconcile. Kathleen would have to reconcile with that little money that she has uh, put away because where did it come from? And like, why is it just so casual for her in a way that it wouldn't be for other people? And maybe she should be using that money for someone else or something else. I don't know. But um, I think those are things that like folks would rather not think about if they can. And again, I think that's why Nora Ephron movies are so lovely because it's like, oh, for once, I don't have to think about all those other things. It's such a privilege and it's such a dream to be able to live like that. So, and it's definitely not one that I've had in my actual reality. Um, Anyway, so I think what's happened in the last, you know, six to nine months here in America is that, you know, um, at least folks my age, I'm 33, um, Everyone's like, oh my God, I have to learn so much. I I need to talk about it. I need to address it. And they get fatigued because the systems here were not created for you to actually engage with that properly. (laughs) Because it's it's too at every point you you realize how this happened, how this became an institution. You you commit yourself to dismantling white supremacy, which I think is a hilarious turn of phrase. I that's impossible. But um it's just, it's, it's, you can't, um, not, not in our current iteration of like how we live. I, I say all the time, you can't be anti-racist and also participate in a capitalist system um, because race supports it. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and folks really struggle with that. So they think they can read a book 
um, and talk to a black person and go on a march and donate some money and it's all gonna be okay. Um, and they'll keep doing that for a while until they realize that it's not okay. And that actually is kind of exhausting. And also they really wanna like use their money on something else and they don't wanna feel guilted about it anymore and all that kind of stuff. And then it goes away. So, you know, amongst other, you know, POC friends of mine and, and you know, radical allies, we sit here and we're watching, well, it's March, uh, you know, uh, everyone seems to be going back to normal. However, I don't, you know, I always, I always want people to kind of challenge themselves on that. Like we all have a role to play with that, but I can't help but also accept and recognize that it's really hard because the onslaught of other shit that is just being poured down on us, that's also the result of a capitalist system, um, is too much. It's absolutely too much. So I don't know, I don't have much hope for for it changing um, anytime soon, but I don't know, I, I appreciate that the conversation is still attempting to be had, that we're still kind of slowly scratching away at this stuff. Yeah, I was going to say Test Pattern is the sort of film that invites conversation about it, you know, in a really interesting way that, again, I don't want to discuss too specifically, but the nature of the film is uh, designed to point to things and make us wonder why or make us ask why. And so ideally, people who see it will talk about it and that keeps the conversation rolling. I, but I don't want to lose the in the back of my head i've just been trying to bookmark this and i, I want to make sure i ask so what was it like for you as a kid right i mean in 1998 seeing you've got mail seeing this sort of this this white uh liberal fantasy and then there's dave Chappelle. like how does that yeah. work he is, I, I was kind of paying attention to it this time yeah i, I don't think there are any asian characters uh, mm -hmm. I think he's the, he's definitely the only black character with a line of dialogue. Mm -hmm. There might be someone else at the party. I couldn't really tell. Uh, I couldn't either. I, I look for it too. Um, that's again, one of the weird reasons why I like the movie because Dave is there. Mm -hmm. And Dave is an interesting foil. His character is an interesting foil to Joe. Like he's, he's kind of a little more cynical and wisecracky, a little more wily. Um, and I, I add all of that, I color all of that to his, you know, racial and ethnic background, right? I'm like, oh, this dude's, you know, he's cynical because he knows what this is really about, you know. But he's also playing to Joe a little bit because he likes his job and he likes access to the money. It's all... <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, Joe's never going to get challenged by Dave Chappelle's character. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I like it. But in general, you know, you ask, you know, as a kid in 1998, you know, what it was like. I grew up in a predominantly white town, you know, um, in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a very segregated city. Yeah. And I happened to live in a part of town that the black people did not live in. So I very rarely saw people who looked like me, um, who lived similarly. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it really did, you know, a number on kind of just like how I understood myself when I was really, really young. Um, I remember in kindergarten um, making a friend with this, this white girl 
And she was so, she kept saying, I can't wait for you to come to my house. I can't wait. I can't wait. I was like, okay, great. You know? Um, and she said, oh, my maid is going to love you. I can't wait for you to meet my maid. And I was just like, great, cool. I'm going to meet your maid. And she's like, oh, so excited. Finally, I go to her house and who opens the door? Her maid. And it's a black woman. And she is very excited to meet me. But I was confused. I didn't understand why. I was like, but... I was like, okay. And so like, you know, she like made me a sandwich. She was so nice to me, but I never, ever, ever understood like what the big deal was until like, I don't know, 15 years later, I like was reflecting on this time when I went to this girl's house and I was like, oh my God, that's what that was. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm unfortunately very used to being in spaces where I am the only one. Um, and so Dave, again, I, I recognize in that respect. And I think also it makes um, the world that Kathleen and Joe occupy not so strange to me because I see it. You know, I think I was never the one that, you know, could have ever been the protagonist in that space. And that's the fantasy. It's the thought that you could be. Um, and there were things that I didn't understand as a kid that, were keeping me, structural things that were keeping me from that, that I wasn't aware of. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know. That's just a new layer of fantasy, I think, as I, as I think about how that film applies to me. <laughs> I know it's, it's uh, like, it's not my area to venture into as an audience member, but I'm always fascinated by the way that works, by, by the choice of, like, the, the story behind Chappelle and You've Got Mail is that he turned down the role of a in, oh, Bubba Gump, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was going to be Bubba in, in Force Company. He turned it down because yeah. he thought the movie was going to be a bomb or something. And so Hanks always wanted to work with him uh, to make up for that. And this was the opportunity. But there is a real, like there's a meaning to having him there, especially where his career was at the time. Like it's not just get a black person to play the best friend. It's get this one. This yeah. guy has a following and a, an identity. And I couldn't tell, because he's also in Half-Baked that year. Yes. <laughs> which was shown in Toronto, so obviously I care about that one more. But like, it's, it's, a, it's this thing where he's in two studio comedies, and he's effectively, you know, he's the lead in, yeah, he's the lead in one, he's the sidekick in the other, and he's fulfilling very, very different purposes, but he still manages to somehow play them with integrity. Absolutely. So it's not... He's good. Yeah. He's so good. He really is. Um, to the point where when he disappears in the third act, I kind of, I missed I him this time. It's like, wait, he doesn't come back at all, does he? I know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I never, you know, I wonder now, you know, because again, this is what I mean by cynical in, you know, current studio movies. I have a feeling in 1998 or seven or whenever they were prepping this film and casting it, I'm sure that character wasn't written like, you know, Joe Fox's, you know, right-hand man, African-American, yeah. 30s, I, I doubt it, I, or 20s, whatever. I'm sure it was like, let's, they talked to the casting director, they talked to Tom's, like, get that guy. He's so great. Love being around him. I bet you anything it was that. Um, and in that sense, it actually makes his character feel so much more, like, 
emotionally authentic and lived in in a way that I think current studio movies are just kind of like, well, we need the whole rainbow. Let's get, let's get a, you know, let's get a black person in there. Let's get an Asian person in there. You know, they're going to, they're going to be friends. And it's yeah. like, well, if you're, how about we just start with the character? We don't put a race on them. And then we widely look for someone great to put in it and leave it at that. So, you know, yeah, I, I think that the casting of Dave Chappelle in You've Got Mail is one of the most special, special things of the 90s. It does feel like a weird little miracle that he snuck in there mm-hmm. and, and still got to be who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I'm sure we've kind of addressed it. The, the usual end for the podcast is that we talk about potential influences and we sort of talked about it uh, in terms of test pattern structure. Mm-hmm. But uh, is there anything from You've Got Mail that you specifically drawn on like any one thing that you wanted to use or steal for future use again it goes back to tom hanks right like tom's kind of joe fox is kind of a monster and yet he's very human and so is evan chambers you know i think I think for all of the sweetness that Evan possesses, for all of the doting and and you know support that he gives Renisha, um, he also has the capacity to be destructive um, and and hurtful. And you know, so I think all the time about you know the nuances that sit within the Joe Fox character and how like wonderful it is to have that, you know, that rendering of a person exist because it, I think, I don't know, it guides me. The best advice I, I ever got um, about writing was that I need to love all of my characters. That includes the bad guys. And what that looks like in practice is um, that everyone deserves the shades of gray. Everyone, you know, no one is just one thing. It's not just this beat over and over and over and over again. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I took that. My thanks to Shatara Michelle Ford, whose excellent first feature, Test Pattern, is now available to stream on the Kino Marquee virtual cinema platform. You can find it at kinomarquee.com. Thanks also to David Nin. He knows what he did. Shatara's Twitter account is private, but you can follow their movie's release at Kino Lorber, all one word, and you can find You've Got Mail on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming on Crave in Canada, and Hulu and HBO Max in the U.S. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days, and writing our weekly Now Streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.